talk about church censures. Now, I suppose this is the one that everybody's been waiting to get to because here he's going to answer all the tough questions about how to do discipline and especially censures wrong. Uh, but um, we'll try and touch on some things as we go along here. As you come to this stage in the process of discipline, the real operative question is, what does the church do if this unheeding, rebellion, uh, rebellious, increasingly hard-hearted brother will not listen even to the church? The last part of verse 17 in Matthew 18. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, here you have an even more intensive thing. Remember he said he wouldn't listen, and now he becomes settled in his refusing to listen, and now it's his settled refusing to listen that manifests itself even when the church acts. Bad enough to reject the counsel of a brother or sister who loves you. Worse still to reject the counsel of two or three brethren who love you. But when you reject the counsel of the church of Jesus Christ itself, then what's to be done? Is that not the end of the line? Well, it's not the end of the line. Jesus has yet given instruction to his church that will work towards the reclamation of the offender. So Jesus says, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So that brings before us the subject of church censures. And a censure is a judicial sentence of condemnation and consequent action. A censure is a judicial declaration, a judicial uh, sentence of condemnation, and I'm not talking about internal condemnation, but a negative judgment, and the actions that are appropriate as a consequence of that negative judgment. And Jesus is the one who tells us the nature of the negative judgment that is to be pronounced. He is to be treated as a pagan and a tax collector. Jesus is the one who calls the church to evaluate and judge the life and profession of this unheeding brother who has now, stage after stage, refused to hear the shepherd's voice. And Jesus is the one who commands the church to take steps to adjust their relationship to this person and the way in which they treat that person in accordance with that new relationship. So there's a real change taking place in the relationships between brethren once this discipline takes place. Now, what gives the church the right to make that kind of judgment? It is certainly not, although it is often charged, the idea that the elders of the church or the people in the church are holier than the person under discipline, and therefore, out of their own self-righteousness, they have the authority to pass judgment upon someone else. That, I suppose, is the most common slander brought against sessions or brought against churches that dare to administer discipline. Who do you think you are anyway? Don't you read the Bible? And the Bible says, he that is without sin cast the first stone. Do you think you're so holy and so spotless and so without sin that you have the authority to cast someone out of the church? Anybody ever heard that before or words to that effect? Sure. That's the invective of a wounded and disappointed person who has finally had to face up to their responsibility before Jesus Christ. But it's not because the church is holier than the person offending. What distinguishes the sinners who are walking by the grace of Christ and those who are finally excluded is not one is more sinful than the other, but one keeps listening to the shepherd's voice and repenting and changing. And the other one, somewhere along the line, has ceased to listen to the shepherd's voice and has quit repenting and changing. 
The authority that the church has in pronouncing this kind of negative judgment is nothing less than the express command of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the one who defines the nature of the church. The church bears his name, and therefore he is the one by his word who has the authority to determine who is in and who is out of the church and what standards are to be used in including and excluding from the church. And Jesus says this is the way he demonstrates his love for his church. He disciplines the children whom he loves. Well, we want to talk about the degrees of church censure for a few moments. And uh, in talking about these disciplinary censures, I want us to be well aware or remind ourselves, maybe we do and don't need to be reminded, but uh, it's good to underscore it, that although when the church administers discipline, it is a court of Jesus Christ and acts like a court, and in many of its deliberations through this process, uh, follows the procedure of a court, and then finally renders a judgment like a court, we ought to be very, very clear that it is not a civil court, and therefore it cannot impose civil penalties. The sword, according to the will of King Jesus, belongs to the state and to the state alone. According to Matthew 13:4, the state bears the sword in its jurisdiction. The church cannot bear the sword. I... Uh, an interesting comment. When I first came to San Diego, it was a couple of years after, I guess, the Congress on the Bible that was held down there, and in some discussions both of uh, church discipline, but especially uh, civil discipline, uh, there was an allusion made to a sermon that was preached uh, at one of those conferences where the uh, pastor, probably at least half facetiously, was uh, talking about sending the deacons down to uh, beat up the unruly husband in a uh, uh, a fractured marriage, you know, since the state won't do anything about it, the church has to act. So let's send the deacons down and beat the tar out of this guy and teach him a lesson. Well, you know, there's something in our flesh that kind of resonates to that idea. But it is ironic that churches that won't let the church administer church discipline can even jokingly suggest that their officers ought to go down and beat somebody up. Now, out of charity the brother, we'll say it was completely a joke and we'll laugh it off. But it is important to remember that Jesus has given the church a certain kind of jurisdiction and a certain kind of censure that it can pronounce, and it is not a physical censure in the sense of beating or incarceration or pronouncing the death penalty. Whatever action the state as an institution may or may not take in a given society under its own jurisdiction is really beyond the scope of the concern that we have here when we're talking about church discipline. Now I stress that because some have become confused when we call upon the state to use the word of God to evaluate its behavior. Some have suggested, well, that's a confusion of church and state, that you're trying to have the church administer the state and the civil penalties, but that's not it at all. The church has to be the church, and the state must be the state. And whatever the state does does not change or adjust or substitute for the appropriate actions of the church. Because there's a lot of confusion there, there have been some, I think, faulty conclusions drawn and maybe some faulty actions taken as a result. The church is the church and not the state, and its censures are spiritual in character and remedial in design. The state, when it uses the sword, 
is not properly concerned with any, making anybody a better person. It is concerned with supporting and establishing justice and bringing things back into their proper order. But the church is always concerned with making people better, always concerned with restoration and recovery, as we've seen throughout our lessons this week. So in Matthew 18, verse 17, the last part, Jesus calls for the exclusion of the unrepentant person from the body of the church. And he tells us how that is to be done and how the church must hereafter treat that person as a pagan and a tax collector, says Jesus. Now we do need to look at this passage in Matthew 18, 17 in the light of some other New Testament passages that give other directions for our practice of discipline and our administration of church censures. And the OPC Book of Discipline has tried to bring these different passages together and synthesize them so that we have an idea of how all of the different pieces fit. Because there isn't a section in the New Testament that simply gives us a book of discipline. It says, here's the degrees of censure and here's how you administer them all and then this is how you deal with a person once they've repented. We have to take our clues from different passages which come in different situations and try and put them together. And in doing that, the OPC Book of Discipline has identified five degrees of censure, one of which is specific to officers in the church, deposition from office, and I'm really not going to deal with that at all because it always comes in conjunction with one of the other censures. But the other four that are identified in our book of discipline, I think, are uh, biblical, and we can understand them a little bit together now. The first two, which are called admonition and rebuke, are essentially two degrees of rebuke. They are in substance the same, but they differ in their intensity. The book of discipline says, admonition consists in tenderly and solemnly confronting the offender with his sin, warning him of his danger, and exhorting him to repentance and to greater fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of rebuke, it says, rebuke is a form of censure more severe than admonition. It consists in setting forth the serious character of the offense, reproving the offender and exhorting him to repentance and to more perfect fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ. So both admonition and rebuke are degrees of rebuke. They are telling the sinner what he has done wrong, calling upon him to repent, and encouraging him that God will forgive him and give grace for more obedience in his life if he turns. Now, already in stage one of informal church discipline and stage two, and maybe well during the course of the early stages of church discipline before the session itself, a brother has been admonished and rebuked a number of times. What's different here from those earlier rebukes is that here the rebuke comes on behalf of the whole church. Now it's not just one brother rebuking or exhorting. It's not just two or three. But now the whole church, through its officers, is pronouncing a rebuke on behalf of the whole body. I don't know if you've thought about it that way when you have heard a rebuke given from the pulpit, or an admonition read. But uh, really, properly understood, you have been engaged in that rebuke. It has been given on your behalf and on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ by your representatives who are the elders in the church. You have all rebuked the offender. 
And so then if you have gone to that offender, perhaps privately, as people sometimes do, and say, well, don't worry about it because I don't agree with what they did either. You have just spoken out of both sides of your mouth. You have rebuked him as a member of the congregation, and then you've come around and said, but we don't really buy that stuff anyway. You see, when these admonitions and rebukes take place, they are acts of the whole church, and they carry the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking in and through his church. And so there's a very seriousness, a great seriousness, a solemnity about rebuking in the name of Christ. Paul gave a command for this kind of rebuke to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, where he told his fellow minister and child in the faith, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. Now, in informal dis discipline, the admonitions, the rebukes, are private, essentially, one person or two or three person. But when it becomes a formal matter of church discipline, then the rebuke is administered publicly. Why? Well, in part, so that others might take warning. So the church rebukes so that the church can take heed, take warning, let it not fall into the same kind of sin. So that's why we don't do these kind, we don't make these kind of censures behind closed doors. Sessions don't administer these kinds of uh, disciplines in isolation from the church because they are acts of the church and the whole church needs to be warned by them. Remember the effect of the death of Ananias and Sapphira on the whole church? Everybody paid attention. Everybody got the warning. Everybody looked to themselves that they not fall under a similar censure from the Lord Jesus. So that's admonition and rebuke. The third censure that's identified in our book of discipline is called suspension. And this censure is more serious and, in a sense, more active on the part of the church. The definition of suspension given in our book of discipline is this. Suspension is a form of censure by which one is deprived of the privileges of membership in the church, of office, or of both. It may be for a definite or an indefinite time. Suspension of an officer from the privileges of membership shall always be accompanied by suspension from office, but the latter does not necessarily involve the former. Well, the first sentence there is really the most important one. Suspension is a uh, depriving of a member of the privileges of membership in the church. As I say, it's a more active, it's a more deliberate, a more serious action. And although it is called suspension, that language isn't particularly descriptive. It isn't particularly helpful. More helpful, although words that uh, bother people more, especially when we have this negative view of discipline, is the language of disfellowshipping a person or shunning that person. But that's really what is being spoken of in the biblical passages that underlie this particular censure. The Holy Spirit gives commands concerning suspension or disfellowship or shunning in two places, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's take a moment to look at those passages and understand them together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, first of all. First of all, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, 
Paul writes, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. That's the commandment of the Holy Spirit. Keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. That person is to be marked. He is to be identified publicly by the church. The church is to keep aloof from him, not to fellowship with him, even at table, and especially at the Lord's table. And so you see, when we think of excommunication, we usually think of deprivation of the privileges of the Lord's table, but that already takes place under this discipline called suspension, this discipline called um, shunning or disfellowshipping. Already actual excommunication takes place, for we are not to fellowship together. And that means in the expressions of the common life that we talked about more generally, but specifically in that epitome of our common fellowship which we share around the Lord's table. The purpose is to make the brother ashamed so that he will repent. Now, keep your finger there in that Second Thessalonians passage, and let's look at 1 Corinthians 5 to compare this and put the two pieces of the puzzle together. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 9. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. See, Paul is saying, I'm not talking about those who are in the world, those who are pagans who are sexually immoral. In that case, you would have to leave this world, and so that's not what is to be done. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, or in some versions, with a so-called brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Such a man, with such a man, do not even eat. So here, in both these instances, this is treatment of a brother, a brother who is a so-called brother, or who claims to be a brother, and that suggests that there is a, a question about his, the credibility of his profession. He is a brother, he's to be treated as a brother, but this suggestion that he's a so-called brother, or claims to be a brother, begins to uh, indicate that there's a question, a legitimate question, about the credibility of his profession when judged by the fruit in his life. But he is still to be admonished, as a brother, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. So the idea here is, you see, that uh, a person who comes under the discipline of suspension is really ostracized from those manifestations of the common life, the Christian fellowship, and yet he is still called upon as a brother, as a member of the church, to repent. And so the effect of that, you see, on the brother is to let him see that, that the, 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 the ties that bind him to the body of Christ are beginning to stretch, and he's losing some fellowship. Now, the way back is always repentance. It's always turn. It's always change. So the way back is always wide open. But if he persists in his hardness of heart, those bonds are being stretched. He's admonished as a brother, but that's about the only thing that he still enjoys uniquely as a brother. Every other kind of fellowship, every other kind of expression of the common life of the people of God, he is excluded from. 
including eating in general with the people of God and eating at the table with the people of God. Now, that's a very powerful censure, but it's also a very difficult censure for individuals and churches to carry out. This really puts everybody in the body of Christ to the test to find out whether they really love the Lord Jesus Christ or whether they love their own ideas, their own hurt feelings, their own concerns, because people who come under this kind of discipline are often very, very close friends of ours in the church. Sometimes they're members of our own family. And so we have this tearing of conflicting loyalties where Jesus is saying to us, do you love your family more than me? Do you love your friend more than me? And we have to wrestle with that. It takes tough love. It's interesting, you know, we sing a hymn like this one that uh, uh, our friends from Carson have shared with us, a wonderful hymn, but, you know, we sing in there, Pursue me with relentless love. Is that it? Grace. I mean, that makes a nice phrase in a song. We love to sing it. But when God's pursuing of us with relentless grace means putting us under suspension, then we say, wait a minute, Lord. We sing that, but that isn't what we really mean. We would rather find some easy way so we can be friends, we can have contact, we don't have family disruptions or, fr or disruptions in friendship. But Jesus just doesn't allow us that. This puts the whole church to the test in terms of the character of their faith and their hope and their love. And if we love men more than God, if we love ourselves more than God, if we love peace more than God, then we will fail to carry out this censure in an effective way. We don't want any of us to fall into the trap of trying to be smarter than Jesus Christ. Jesus says, do it this way, and we say, but Lord, i got a better idea. Ford can have a better idea, but the church cannot have a better idea than the Lord Jesus himself. We must do it his way. And if we do it his way, he is the one that has given the promise that it will work. So again, we are called upon to trust Jesus and then obey. For there's no other way for us to be happy and effective in our church discipline but to do it his way. Well, finally and most seriously comes the censure called in our book of discipline excommunication. Although again, that term excommunication isn't particularly descriptive because the actual act of excommunication, exclusion from communicating at the Lord's table, has already taken place. Adams suggests that a better term is putting out of the midst of the church because that's really what is happening in this fourth degree of censure. In the language of the Old Testament, it's the language of cutting off. Cutting off sometimes meant exclusion by death, but more often it meant exclusion by banishment or by exile, by being put out of the body of Christ. And this is what Jesus is referring to when he uses the language in Matthew 17, 18, verse 17, of treating this former brother as a pagan and as a tax collector. He can no longer be treated as a brother or even as a so-called brother who has the benefit of the doubt. He is now to be treated as one who is no longer identified with Christ, no longer identified with the faith of the gospel, no longer identified with the body of the church. He is solemnly, authoritatively, in Jesus' name and with tears to be put out 
of the church of Jesus Christ, banished from the company of those who love and serve the king. Now someone put under that kind of censure may well still profess faith in Jesus Christ. But the church has to now tell him, yes, we hear what you say, but we don't believe you anymore. Sometimes our children disobey us deliberately, and by way of mollifying our wrath, we'll say, but I really love you, Mommy. I love you, Dad. And we have to say, you know, when you persist in disobedience to what I tell you, I can't believe you when you say you love me. Because if you love me, you'll do what I say. And Jesus says the same thing. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the rebellious, hard-hearted person who comes under this kind of serious discipline may keep saying, I love the Lord, I love the Lord, I love the Lord. But Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll repent, you'll turn, you'll hear my voice and follow me, and you won't do that. By his stubborn, persistent refusal to hear the shepherd's voice, his profession of faith is no longer believable. Jesus touches on that kind of conflict at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses which I think we are familiar with and are very chilling and frightening in their import. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now that's a portrait of the ultimate banishment, the ultimate and eternal cutting off. But Jesus says that when the church administers discipline effectively, it is reflecting that kind of judgment. And the only thing that can turn someone from that is not saying, Lord, Lord, but doing the will of the Father, which is to turn from sin, to repent, and to walk in the ways of God's obedience. And a person under this kind of discipline that continues to profess Christ is like one who says, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we preach? Didn't we cast out demons and do many miracles? And Jesus' response has to be reflected by the church. We don't know you. Jesus doesn't know you if you don't obey. And your obedience must begin with repentance and turning. Now, it's very important that we realize that Jesus does not call upon us to judge whether such a person is regenerate or not, although often we use that language talking about a person being unregenerate. We really are not qualified to make that determination. But he does call upon us as members of his church to judge the life and the profession, the fruit and the tree of a person's life, and then to act accordingly. How are we to act? Jesus tells us that we are to treat such a one as a pagan and a tax collector. We need to practically adjust our relationships to that person. We can no longer speak to him as a brother, which is not to say we may no longer speak to him, but no longer as a fellow member of the fellowship of Jesus Christ. He must become the object of our evangelistic concern to call him to Christ, 
to call him to return, to call him to faith in the Savior. And so our treatment of him is like our treatment, or like our treatment ought to be, of any other non-Christian. So I believe the ban from any social contact, which is characteristic of suspension, is no longer at stake, or no longer applicable once that brother is excommunicated, but now all your contact with them must begin with the fact that there is now a great gulf between you and them. They are outside until they repent, and your fellowship with them cannot have the flavor of common love and concern in Christ any longer. They are, however, different from garden-variety, unchurched pagans in that you know that they have heard the gospel. You know that they have been confronted with the demands of following Christ. You know that they may have had years of experience of walking faithfully with the Lord before they hardened their heart and began to drift away. So there isn't the kind of urgency about seeking, 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 seeking them like there is when you're trying to seek one who is lost and has never heard the gospel. Although you don't want to push the details of the parables excessively, I think it is worth noting that in the parable of the prodigal son, while the father is more than willing to receive the returning son, he doesn't chase the son from pig trough to pig trough to pig trough to pig trough, saying, come back, come back, come back, come back. When the son comes to his senses, he knows what he needs to know, namely that the slaves in my father's house live better than this. I'm going home again. What he's surprised by is the Father's free and gracious reception of him, not as a slave, but as a son, and the joy that follows in the Father and in the Father's household. So we need to treat one who has been put out of the church as a pagan as, and as a tax collector. Now there is another passage, or another portion of a passage we've already looked at, that deals with this same issue. 1 Corinthians 5, the beginning part of that chapter 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and if on of a kind, that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. So it was adultery and incest that was the problem. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Then you are, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Hand such a one over to Satan, says Paul. Put him out of the fellowship. No longer does he share in the common ties of the people of God. Now, when a person is put out of the fellowship, especially in America in this day and age, you know, it's uh, quite likely that he may just go down the street and find another church that will uh, take him in, no questions asked. Or may ask all the questions and then say, what a mean, nasty, rotten church you used to belong to. Aren't you glad you're here where you can be free in Christ? Horrors. What do you do? Well, the question of interchurch discipline, of course, is a very important one. It's one that has been touched on in some of Adam's writings, but uh, at this point, because we're running short of time, I just uh, want to uh, mention that we, we ought to pursue those people 
to the appropriate judicatory of the other church, at least to the extent that we warn them that by taking that person into their fellowship, they really are identifying with a lawbreaker, a covenant breaker, and are coming subject to all of the liability that that person is under. Our family the other day read the uh, story of Achan. And I was pointing out to my children as we read that story that uh, the punishment of Achan was so severe, not just because he had disobeyed the Lord, but because he had chosen to identify with that which was under God's judgment. And so he came under that same judgment. And in a similar fashion, a church that receives one under God's disciplinary judgment and doesn't support that judgment by carrying it out to the extent that they're able, is identifying with one under God's judgment and is liable to that discipline themselves. Now, that often happens quite clearly and quite quickly when the offense is factiousness or schismatic uh, characteristic. Jay Adams tells the story one time of a, a person that was in his church, tried to split the church, was disciplined, and went down the street to another church, and Jay called that pastor up and said, this person is a, is a church splitter, is under discipline here, you better watch out. And the other pastor said, well, thank you very much for your concern, goodbye, hung up. And Jay crossed paths with this pastor six months or ten months later, and that pastor said, I wish I'd listened to what you said. Because three months after they were in my church, they split my church right down the middle. And half of my church is gone. I wish I'd listened. So you see, we need to warn. We may not be able to do much more than warn, but we need to warn another church of the serious consequences of being a place for people under God's judgment of discipline to flee to. Oftentimes, another practical problem is that people will leave the church in order to escape godly discipline. Now, our book of discipline does provide for censure to take place even if one asks their name to be erased, and I think that's the best way to proceed because it makes the issue clear that someone isn't leaving for any old reason or because they have a justified complaint, but because they have sought to escape God's discipline. John, in 1 John 2.19, draws his conclusion from the defection of some who went out from his company, he said they went out from us so that it might be evident to all that they were not of us. And so, in effect, fleeing discipline is self-excommunication. It is renouncing willingly the shepherding care of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as I mentioned, oftentimes that can go on in a person's life while they're still saying, I'm a believer, and I love the Lord, and I want to do his will. So it's important that the whole body of Christ show a united purpose and a united determination in supporting the censures that are pronounced by their elders. If those censures are in accordance with the word of God, and if the procedure has been godly through, then we ought all to stand together in our appeal to those who have been censured to return to Jesus Christ, and he will welcome them. If we fall into the satanic trap of falling prey to other loyalties, you know, blood is thicker than faith, which is just the opposite of what the Bible says. Faith is thicker than blood. Faith is thicker than anything. Or, you know, we're business partners. Or, you know, we've been friends for 20 years. Or whatever those other loyalties might be. If we fall prey to using those loyalties as reason to discount or minimize the effect of discipline, then we are no friend 
of our friends under discipline, for we are simply giving them comfort as they flee from the presence of God. And that's a sad, sad thing to do for anyone. The last phrase that's used by Paul in these verses has to do with handing such a one over to Satan. It's a difficult phrase to know exactly what he means, but certainly from the context it does have reference to some kind of chastening effect and maybe a physically chastening effect. Out from under the shepherding care of the fold and the great shepherd of the sheep, that disciplined person is out there in the howling wilderness where it's a dangerous place to be, where there are wolves and lions that can tear and destroy. And that might be experienced by a person under discipline in terms of bitter shame, heartbreaking emotions, loss, or even provocation by physical suffering that God might heap upon them for their failure to repent. But it doesn't mean that in handing one over to Satan, we are reprobating them. The Roman Catholic Church's view of excommunication has the effect of reprobating someone, to say that you are now irreparably lost. And that certainly isn't what Paul means, because as we'll see in the next hour, this very person who was handed over to Satan ultimately did repent and was received back again into the church. So it doesn't mean that a person is reprobate beyond hope. And that ought to be an encouragement to us, too. Maybe one of the reasons we are so hesitant to excommunicate someone is because we're afraid that that's really an admission of defeat and of hopelessness. Now, nothing can be done. But Jesus doesn't see it that way, nor does the Apostle Paul. Well, we're out of time for this hour. Uh, on the balance of the outline for this, uh, this particular lesson, I just point out that the purpose of this church discipline or of these censures uh, is in these passages to exclude the offender from the fellowship. And here I just remind you of what I said earlier about the effect of sin in polluting the whole body. Sin affects the whole body. It is dangerous for the whole body. It brings shame upon the name of Christ and may even cause the ungodly to blaspheme the name of our Lord. But not only does it stress the importance of the glory of Christ and the purity of the church, but because this whole process of discipline in Matthew 18 has stressed its remedial purpose, we need to understand that even these censures are also remedial in their design. It's serious stuff. It takes tough love, but it is still characterized by love, hope, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If out of love, hope, and faith we obey Christ's injunction to administer these censures, then that discipline will, in many cases, bring about the restoration that we desire and that the Good Shepherd also desires. And that restoration is what we'll spend a few minutes talking about in our last lesson. Any uh, announcements before we... We have a pair of sunglasses. <laughs>